You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with a tale of two parties, one united, one tearing itself apart. Today, nearly two weeks after Inauguration Day, Democrats have finally formalized a deal that cements their control of the United States Senate. President Biden and his colleagues have made it clear that on COVID relief, they have zero interest in waiting on Republicans. Yesterday, Democrats pushed forward with a motion to pass Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID package, with or without Republican support. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell called the move totally partisan, which is rich. Coming from a guy who used the exact same tool to pass a $1.5 trillion tax cut for the rich. You'll notice that Republicans love to wave the word unity like a bloody shirt when they criticize Democrats. But you know what's better than fake unity? Action. Action that helps people. That's the job of governing. And in many ways, we are now down to just one governing party. This morning, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer led a congressional tribute to Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick, who died during the insurrection last month. Each day when members enter the Capitol, this temple of democracy, we will remember his sacrifice and then others that day who fought so hard to protect the Capitol, and the Congress. That somber tribute stood in stark contrast to the other big story coming from the Capitol today, the utter crack-up of the GOP. House Republicans are currently going at each other over their support for Donald Trump in a closed-door conference meeting. In one corner is Liz Cheney, who defended her vote to impeach the president. And in the other are all the members who supported overthrowing the will of 81 million Americans. Another topic is what to do with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Not wanting to infuriate a core constituency of his party, minority leader Kevin McCarthy has refused to remove Greene from her committee assignments, including on education, even after her past promotion of school shooting conspiracy theories and endorsing the assassination of her current Democratic colleagues, including Speaker Pelosi. McCarthy did issue a statement late this afternoon assuring everyone that he gave Marge a stern talking to. He left the punishment, however, to Democrats. The Congresswoman remains unrepentant. You know what? Just like every single other person, yeah, I have said things I shouldn't say at some time or another, but I don't think I have anything to apologize for. America, and more importantly, the Republican Party, has faced this predicament before. Back in the late 1950s and 60s, the far-right fringe group was the John Birch Society, an insurgent movement co-founded by the father of the Koch brothers, along with a guy named Robert Welch. The Birch Society became so influential, it endorsed Barry Goldwater's candidacy for president, and voters' association of him with them arguably helped bring it down. Remember, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. 
Apparently extremism? It actually is a vice. And unlike McCarthy, conservative leaders like Richard Nixon and William F. Buckley, despite the Birchers' growing popularity based on their anti-communist and evangelical zeal, rallied to boot them out of the party, calling them kooks and nuts who were devoid of conservative ideals. And they ultimately chased them out, or at least they quieted them down. How kooky were the Birchers? They opposed adding fluoride to the nation's water supply, arguing it was an involuntary mass medical treatment. And their big conspiracy theory was that most of the United States government, including former Republican President Dwight D. Eisenhower, were under secret communist mind control. Today, Mother Jones is reporting that Congresswoman Margie Q. Green was the moderator of a Facebook group that pushed death threats, racist memes, and championed the John Birch Society. Now, make no mistake, Ms. Green is not a one-off here. In her extremist views, she just happens to be boasty enough to proclaim her hate on social media, a modern-day bircher. Joining me now are Alex Wagner, co-host and executive producer of Showtime's The Circus, David Jolly, former Republican congressman who's no longer affiliated with the party, and David Korn, Washington bureau chief for Mother Jones and the journalist behind that Birch Society scoop on the Q Congresswoman. So I will start with you, David Korn. Um, so today you had actually the Speaker of the House refer to Kevin McCarthy as Q California because he just won't rein this woman in. We're now hearing that Margie Q got a standing O inside. Uh, this is Jake Sherman of Punchbowl reporting that Margie Q got a standing ovation inside of the caucus when she gave a little speech. Uh, do, in your view, in your reporting, are we basically back to the John Birch Society moment here for the GOP? Well, we are, but it seems to be the flip side of that moment. Uh, as you noted in your great uh, setup, when the Birchers were you know, producing these crazy conspiracy theories about Dwight Eisenhower, that the civil rights movement was totally controlled by the communists. It was really, the, the, the big thing was that this is all a giant internationalist cabal for one world government to take over the United States. And William F. Buckley in the mid 60s, and even Ronald Reagan, that conservative champion, feared that the John Birch Society was tainting the conservative movement, making them look like wackos and making it harder for Republicans to win elections. So Buckley, who was the godfather of modern conservatism, and Reagan essentially drummed the Birchers out of polite company when it came to the GOP and the conservative movement. Now, you know, 50 years, more than 50 years later, we have a similar situation, except the leaders of the GOP are not doing that. You have Donald Trump, who has endorsed a lot of conspiracy theories, and it's all the same thing. It's, you know, it's about the deep state, traitors, liberals being, you know, the enemies of the nation, got to get rid of them. It's all about paranoia and fear and get rid of the UN. It's really kind of exactly the same thing. If you go to the website that I wrote about today, you'll see many of the exact same themes that the Birchers were promoting. And so now, though, 50, 60 years later, you don't have the heads of the Republican Party trying to push the Birchers to the side, you know, through talk radio, through Donald Trump. They're embracing these ideas. And Kevin McCarthy is basically saying, huh, can't do much about this because the party has become a radicalized base that believes a lot of the stuff that's been fed to it. So uh, it's like the yeah. 60s, but backwards. It's like, right. Exactly. It, even more backwards. You know, and David, you know, you were a part of this party. I mean, 
back during the 1960s and going into the 1970s, I mean, it's not as if the people who pushed the Birchers out were not also ultra-right conservatives, right? I mean, you had Ronald Reagan, um, who opposed Medicare and thought it was some sort of communist plot or socialist plot that was going to destroy uh, the United States of America, right? Um, you know, you had William F. Buckley, who opposed the Civil Rights Act. So these were not people who were like not 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 conservative. I mean, Liz Cheney is a far right winger who was has almost a perfect voting record with Trump. So it doesn't even matter how right wing these people are. What, what essentially has happened is, you know, the speaker said they're going to give the keys to Green. She has the keys already. Do, does she not? Oh, she certainly does. David look, you're, you're, yeah. Yeah. So Joyce, she certainly does. And you're and you're peeling back a very important nuance in the politics of all this right now, which is that these are not debates on the left-right ideological spectrum that you typically see among parties, right? If you look at today's Democratic Party, we know in November there was a debate between the moderates and progressives about who bore responsibility for November losses. We see the debate over procedure. Should they use reconciliation in the Senate? Just go to 51 votes to get uh, Biden's agenda passed. Those are traditional conversations and debates that are had within parties. These are not ideological left-right debates, conservative versus moderate in today's Republican parties. These are debates over fundamental values of democracy. Was Liz Cheney correct in admonishing a president for inciting a violent insurrection against the United States? Is Marjorie Greene right or wrong for elevating conspiracy theories that the FBI has suggested could be a threat to our own domestic security here within within our shorelines. Those are debates within the Republican Party. The Democrats are having debates over ideology. Republicans are having debates over values. And frankly, they're losing that debate in the eyes of the American people. You know, and, and it, it strikes me, Alex, that what the, the response of Republicans to these questions about whether or not Margie Q. Green is dangerous or wants to see the speaker killed. Their response is Ilhan Omar, Ilhan Omar, Ilhan Omar. She's a Muslim. That's bad. Right. I mean, you've got now not only uh, Margie Green herself tweeting out images of Representative Omar, who is like who they fixate on along with AOC. You've got a lawmaker, a Republican um, member of the House pushing to swap out the Democratic push to get Green expelled and swap in Congresswoman Omar's name in there. And that is sponsored by five entire human Republicans inside of the House from Texas, Arizona, all over the place, including Ronnie Jackson, who, for God's sakes, used to be the White House doctor, which scares me. Um, it goes on and on and on. It's all about the one hijab wearing Congresswoman. That's the boogie woman. That's the boogie woman. Right. So you've been down in this district, in her district, Margie Green's district, talking to her voters. Is that where they are? Is, are they just worried that that lady is in Congress, not that their congresswoman is there? So I spent the day in the 14th district of Georgia, which is, of course, Marja, Marjorie Taylor Greene's congressional district. And I was talking to one of the county Republican chairs about how they're grappling with this moment. And I will say there are a lot of ethical and, and logical pretzels that they are tying themselves up into. But you're right, Joy, they want to make this a false equivalence. They want to say, oh, Democrats tolerate outlandish remarks in their caucus. Why can't we? This is an issue of freedom of speech. This is an issue of cancel culture, liberal overreach once again, 
Marjorie Taylor Greene is a fighter. She's a fighter for us. And she deserves to stay on those committees. She deserves to stay in Congress. That's the way they think they win this, because they say Marjorie Taylor Greene was elected to Congress to to not pull any punches, to be a fighter in the mold of Donald Trump. And by God, we're going to let her do that. Um, the more they can get away from Jewish space lasers starting wildfires and Parkland being a false flag, the firmer territory they feel like they're on. So, yes, you see that argument laid out in the pages of The Wall Street Journal. You see it coming from the minority leader's uh, desk. This is their new this is the this is the battle that they want to have. They want this to be about the Democrats trying to cancel conservative thought and conservative speech, because that is the only way you get past the insanity of what Marjorie Taylor Greene has endorsed in the recent past. Well, and I I think that is the perfect point to make, David Jolly, because this has been the big argument in conservatism. It's not been about, like, conservative ideas or what they think should be done about the size of the administrative state. It has been about that. It has been about the culture saying you can't say X. You can't use the N-word if you're not a rapper. You can't, you know, you, you can't disparage Muslims because people then cancel you. You get canceled if you're racist. You can't be racist or you get called racist and you get canceled. That's what they care about. They only care about these cultural things, whether or not, you know, sort of Looney Tunes people can be speaking on college campuses without getting, you know, protested. Like, that's all I care about. Yeah, look, Joy, there are millions upon millions of Americans in the flyover states who feel that their values are disrespected by the political establishment, right? Whether that's right or wrong, that is a motivating influence to that informs their politics. Republicans have seized on that, but in a very dangerous way. They have lit a match to it and have abandoned all reason and truth. And I I go back to this abandonment of reason and truth as such a critical matter because this is a national security test for Republicans in this moment. The FBI has said it is not the rise of nationalism. We have always had nationalism in our politics. It is the spread of disinformation that is motivating the actions of these, these white nationalists. That is the misinformation upon which Marjorie Greene has staked her political platform. And shame on Kevin McCarthy for how he handled it, because I guarantee you today, Joy, that Kevin McCarthy in private did not admonish Marjorie Greene. Kevin McCarthy counseled Marjorie Greene on how to get through this moment politically and in the eyes of the public. Kevin McCarthy needs Marjorie Greene. Marjorie Greene does not need Kevin McCarthy. He wants to be the next speaker. He is going to do whatever he can to help her through this moment. That that is exactly right, David, just from your reporting, how how much into the so-called establishment did this group, this Facebook group that Marjorie Greene was hosting dig? Because it seems to me that there is she isn't some aberrant figure inside of Republican politics. Well, well, she isn't. I mean, Donald Trump wasn't an aberrant figure and he has been promoting conspiracy theories for years. Birtherism got him into the job in the first place in terms of Republicans. So we, you know, we see, you know, to David Jolly's point, you know, John Boehner, you know, wanted the Tea Party, despite a lot of the hatred and some of the conspiracy theories they were pushing. And now you have with Marjorie Taylor, it's not just conspiracy theories about Jewish space lasers and um, John F. Kennedy uh, Jr. uh, being killed in some mysterious uh, cabal. It's also the violence. This is what, you know, we didn't see this. If you go back, you compare it to the Berkshires again, um, you, you know, you see this ready, uh, this, this appeal to violence with memes and other things that, that are on the, this Facebook page. And that's as important, if not more important, than her nutty ideas. 
You know, and, and Alex, I, that is what strikes me, is that, you know, there are all these write-ups about the sort of end of virtuism, that the prediction was that it was going to inspire sort of an extreme radicalism on the right, in which the party could indeed devolve into a sort of web of conspiracy theories, all based on this demographic panic. When you walk through that district, how pervasive is the kind of thinking that we're seeing among Marjorie Greene? Because I suspect it's more pervasive than we would like to think. I think it's probably a multi-step process, right? I mean, I, I, just from talking to the number of uh, folks in this sphere that I have, Fox News is often the entry, uh, the, the gateway drug, if you will. And then there's social media and social media feeds that spin up some of the lunatic theories of the far right fringe. But when they're sanitized into people's own Facebook feeds, it becomes much more palatable, becomes much more real. And I think it speaks to the sort of animating factor in Republican circles right now, which is fear and paranoia. And then when you, you add sort of news tidbits to that, you can get spun up in this really like untethered web of alt reality. That's what's happening to people who are otherwise normal people living in the world. Right. And, and as David Jolly points out, the schism over information, the break between like the reality of facts and figures and the paranoid rabbit hole into which a, a 33 to 40% of this country has fallen is the work of the 20th century and the work of Republican leadership if they have any hope of saving their party. It, 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 when you cannot explain the cultural change and why this panel doesn't look like it used to in the 1960s, and somebody who's a congressperson or seems authoritative starts telling you it's because, even if they say it's because of lasers, after a while, you start to believe it. That's what's happening. It is wild to watch it happen. Alex Wagner, David Jolly, David Korn, thank you both. Thank you all three very much. All right. Well, today, Pete Buttigieg took the oath of office as the nation's first LGBTQ cabinet, confirmed cabinet secretary. His husband, Chaston, held the Bible. Fellow history maker and Vice President Kamala Harris administered the oath. Pete Buttigieg will join me tomorrow for his first interview since becoming Biden's transportation secretary. Oh, and yes, we will talk high speed rail. And up next on the readout, the Democratic Senate majority finally gets their gavels. Senator Raphael Warnock joins me on what the Senate's new power sharing agreement means for the Democrats go big agenda. And South Dakota's governor looks at the flaming wreckage of her covid policies and says, it, this is all fine. We did have tragedies and we did have losses, but we also got through it better than virtually every other state. Nope, 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 not even close, Governor. Uh-uh. Back with more of the readout after this. Democrats finally have full control of the United States Senate after a power-sharing agreement was reached by party leaders. Now, that should have happened two weeks ago after Georgia's newest senators, Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, were sworn in, giving Democrats the majority. But, of course, Mitch McConnell, in a final power play before shrinking back into his shell as the minority leader, held up the routine procedure, hoping he could extort concessions to weaken the Democrats' hand. Well, that failed. And now, with committee gavels in hand, Democrats can move forward in cleaning up the mess of the past four years and getting to work for the American people. And with me now is Senator Raphael Warnock of the great state of Georgia. And Senator, thank you so much for being here. Uh, let's talk about what you are going to be able to accomplish now that Democrats finally have the majority. You're on agriculture, banking, 
Commerce, Science and Transportation, the Joint Economic Committee and a committee on aging. What's your priority and what do you think you can get done quickly? Well, thank you so much, Joy. It's great to be here again with you. You know, as I stand here in the rotunda of the Capitol, I can't help but think about the fact that it wasn't that long ago that I came to this uh, uh, very rotunda as an activist and I was arrested in an act of civil disobedience, standing up for the most marginalized members of our society. At that time, we were protesting the fact that we were passing a $2 trillion tax giveaway, mainly to the riches of the rich, while taking much needed resources away from the children's health care program, uh, resources needed from folks who are living on the edge. And today I stand here uh, having moved from being an agitator to a legislator with an opportunity to translate my protests into public policy. And that's what we intend to do in this COVID-19 relief package. Uh, we've got to get the people of America and the people of Georgia the relief that they need. Uh, it is urgent. It, it needs to be quick. Uh, it needs to be fair. And it needs to be equitable. And so we will be working hard uh, to make sure that the vaccine is distributed to make sure that we can safely reopen our schools uh, and that people have the relief that they need uh, right now uh, as folks are food insecure and struggling in so many ways. And the committee assignments that I have position me well to do the work uh, that I promised the people of Georgia that I will do. So you now one of the things that you ran on, you were very explicit about it. Two thousand dollar checks for Americans. If you want, you want. Are the checks that come to Georgians going to be $2,000 or $1,400? And if it's not $2,000, is that a problem for you? Listen, I, I think that it is important that we get the people of Georgia aid and that we get it uh, as soon as possible. Uh, and that's what I intend to do. I, I think that the people of Georgia, while uh, the politicians are going back and forth, uh, haven't seen any relief at all. And so we intend to deliver not only on these checks, um, but we are very focused on getting people in rural Georgia the assistance that they need. I've been standing up uh, for farmers, people that I've met while I was on the campaign trail, uh, who have uh, been slammed uh, over the last few years and have not gotten the kind of support uh, that they need. Uh, we've got to make sure that, mm -hmm. that workers get what they need, that they can have a fair wage. I'm, uh, I uh, am a co-sponsor on the Fair Wage Act, and we're helping people to get their voice in their own democracy. And just just to just to button this up, if the current bill, the one point nine trillion passes and the checks are fourteen hundred dollars, will you push for another six hundred to make that total two thousand? Well, I've, I've already been pushing. That. I've been pushing for uh, okay. two thousand dollars to make sure that people get the, the aid that they need. But I think that there's more than one entry gotcha. point uh, to make sure that folks get the relief, mm -hmm. the relief that they need. And we're working uh, on that. Uh, for example, I've been standing up for the earned income tax credit, the child tax credit. I think that there are tools in the toolbox to get the people who are struggling mm -hmm. the support that they need. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready... 
the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. I want to ask you about the Voting Rights Act. Um, there is a John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act that is in part of H.R. 1. I know you support that legislation. Just to be clear, if that passes, will it put us back to the preclearance standards of the original 1965 Voting Rights Act? Or will it require that states show that they already engaged in discrimination and that there have been lawsuits that have proved that there's been discrimination in order for those states to be pre-cleared? Because in that second instance, it seems that some states where there hasn't been a lawsuit yet could get by and still discriminate against voters. Listen, voter suppression is something that we take very seriously. And I wouldn't be here uh, if we weren't fighting so hard against it in the state of Georgia, uh, which in many ways continues to be ground zero for voter suppression. You see that as a result of what we achieved in January, uh, the Georgia state legislature is busy right now. Uh, there are legislators who think that if they don't like the outcome, that they ought to change the rules. And so uh, we're working hard to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. It will provide, indeed, the kinds of protections that you need to mitigate against the very tricks that we're seeing being played right now in uh, the Georgia state legislature. But in addition to that, I am a co-sponsor for the For the People Act, which will expand people's access to the ballot box. In the United States of America, we shouldn't be making it harder to vote. We ought to be making it easier. Through early voting, same-day registration, uh, by providing the states the kinds of resources that we need to make sure that people have access to the ballot box. And we proved in Georgia that when, when the people can vote, when all the people can vote, uh, you get historic outcomes. And apparently there's some folk who don't like it, so they're trying to change the rules, which is why we ought to, to work very hard to pass the For the People Act and also the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Those things together will take us a long way with expanding access to the ballot box and providing the kind of voter protections that we need. All right, uh, Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock, are you preaching on Sunday? I know you said you were going to try to fly oh. home and preach. Are you preaching at Ebenezer on Sunday? Oh, abs absolutely. Tune in. We're going to preach on Sunday morning at Ebenezer Church. Uh, all right, Reverend, Reverend, the Reverend Senator uh, Raphael Warnock. Thank you very much, sir. Really appreciate your time tonight. And up next, the former president's impeachment lawyer argues that because the Florida man did his best to get his supporters riled up just because he did that, well, that does not make him responsible for the crowd getting riled up. That surely makes perfect sense. We will never give up. We will never concede. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. We will stop the steal. 
Those were just some of the words that ignited a full-scale MAGA invasion of the U.S. Capitol last month. The events of January 6th were the culmination of a months-long campaign by the former president to discredit the vote, deliberately spreading the big lie that the election was stolen from him. He stoked the tinderbox, then lit the flame. But according to his impeachment defense lawyer, the ex-president is not responsible for the things he says. Just because somebody gave a speech and um, and got and people got excited, that that doesn't mean that the speechmaker's fault. It's the people who got excited and and did what they know is wrong uh, that that are at fault. Ah, okay, okay, okay. So only the MAGA mob deserves the blame, not their dear leader. Got it. Meanwhile, several several defendants involved in the siege are pointing the finger right back. As one of their lawyers argued in court, this offense must be viewed through the lens of an event inspired by the president of the United States. Joining me now is Congressman Hakeem Jeffries of New York, chairman of the House Democratic Caucus. You know, and it it is very interesting, um, Mr. Chairman, uh, listening to the argument that the Trump lawyers are making. They're essentially trying to divorce him from the events that took place on January 6th. What do you make of that argument? That's correct. And it's an argument that I think should carry no weight. Donald Trump summoned the mob to Washington. He then incited the mob during his remarks and then directed the mob to march toward the Capitol, where we know there was a violent attack and an insurrection and an attempt to try to halt the peaceful transfer of power. And Joy, as you indicated, he also perpetrated this whole affair by fanning the flames of the insurrection by telling the big lie that the election was stolen from him. Joe Biden wasn't going to be the legitimate next president of the United States of America. And if they wanted to do something about it, they needed to show strength. And that's why Donald Trump needs to be held accountable for his actions and inciting a violent insurrection. You know, the question is whether or not there are enough senators who will do that. You were an impeachment manager the first time and you saw the obstinance of Republicans, even the idea of having witnesses. Here is a potential witness. If, if this person were to be called, this is one of the members of Congress who witnessed the attack. And she's particularly compelling. Uh, Jackie Speer, um, who is a congressman, congresswoman, um, who survived the Jonestown attacks before all of the people killed themselves in my mother's home country of Guyana, the Americans who flew down there and killed themselves. There was actually a shootout on the tarmac in the airport um, in Georgetown in Guyana in 1978. Um, Jackie Spear was shot five times. We have a picture here of her um, when Jim Jones's cult converged on them. And here she was talking earlier today. She did an interview um, in which she talked about her experience then versus her experience on January 6th. There were 30 of us that were in the gallery when the pounding started uh, on the doors of the chamber. And then a shot rang out. And uh, I was, you know, thrown back in time to 1978 when I was lying on that airstrip um, and shooters came and shot us at point blank range. If you were an impeachment manager this time around, would you call members like Jackie Spear? It's not clear to me that I would call members, but but certainly I think there's videotape uh, information that can be presented. And Jackie Spears' story is particularly compelling, as is the case with those members who were in the gallery, because they experienced terror firsthand. 
Uh, and as Jackie Spears has indicated, uh, for a lot of members, uh, it harkened back to some of the most traumatic moments that they've confronted uh, in their lifetimes. Jackie Spears confronted a particularly traumatic moment and is very tough. And for her to tell that story in such a compelling way, I would find that moving. The House managers haven't revealed to us how they're going to approach uh, the evidence and the information and the witnesses that they are going to present. But I do remain hopeful that the senators on the Republican side of the aisle, at least enough of them, are going to follow the facts, apply the law, be guided by the Constitution, and let the chips fall where they may, even if that means convicting Donald Trump. Yeah. And, you know, Congressman, you are, a, uh, among other things, you are a New Yorker. You are a, a young black man. Actually, your dad, uh, my, my, my husband, took classes with your father. So I know that you are somebody who is, is, you know, understands the struggle. What do you make of the easy treatment, the light treatment? So many of these MAGA rioters, these insurrectionists have gotten by magistrate courts around the country. USA Today reports of one capital riot suspect being considered to get to go on vacation in Mexico. They've asked for organic food. They've gotten to stay home awaiting trial. Just as somebody who experienced the Capitol riot yourself, how do you feel about that? Certainly my hope that the relevant authorities will throw the book at those who violently attacked the Capitol. These were domestic terrorists. These were insurrectionists. These were people who were trying to halt the peaceful transfer of power. And we need to see justice done, and justice in this case means serious jail time after a serious prosecution. You know, you had people who were killed as a result of this attack. You have over 140 police officers who have been seriously injured. Many of those individuals have suffered traumatic brain or head injuries. One officer has lost three fingers. Another officer may lose sight in at least one eye. This is not uh, a situation that should be treated lightly. Those individuals who've been charged with these crimes uh, should be held accountable for the serious nature of the offenses that occurred. And, and the last question I have to ask you, I hate to, to, to you know, burden your time talking about Marjorie, the Q lady, uh, Taylor Greene. Uh, it seems to me that she got a standing ovation when she spoke in her caucus today. What kind of house are you serving in when you've got people like that rolling around to the, the, the caucus seems to support on the Republican side? Well, it's a tale of two cities in terms of the House of Representatives. House Democrats were on the floor uh, starting the process to pass the American Rescue Plan to crush the co coronavirus, to provide direct assistance and relief to everyday Americans and begin the process of reviving our economy. While at the same time, the QAnon caucus leader, Marjorie Taylor Greene, is getting a standing ovation and a pass from Kevin McCarthy. You know, the party of Lincoln is gone. The party of Reagan is gone. The party of McCain is gone. The party of Marjorie Taylor Greene has taken over. It's sad and it's pathetic. Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, my husband is texting me, frantically texting me, he's like, it's his mom that, uh, that my husband took classes with, not your dad, but uh, your family is great. They're very well known in the state, in the city of New York. So thank you very much. Really appreciate uh, you being here this evening. And still ahead, South Dakota's Christy Nome says her state is an example to the nation on how to handle the pandemic, as if we'd really want to follow an example that left people as unwitting participants in a deadly herd immunity experiment. Mm -hmm. Stay with us.
they have used for the last year, fear, to control people. And in South Dakota, we just took a very different path. We knew the science told us we couldn't stop the virus. We could slow it down and protect people who might be vulnerable and make sure we had enough hospital capacity to take care of those who would need it, but that we were gonna do it together and allow people to be flexible to take care of their families and still put food on the table. So, you know, that was a unique approach that for our people really worked well. Uh, we did have tragedies and we did have losses, but we also got through it better than virtually every other state. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did, did Christy Nome just say with a straight face that her state has done, quote, better than virtually every state on coronavirus? That is, like, not true in the slightest. South Dakota is the number two state in the entire country when it comes to the number of per capita cases behind only North Dakota. And they're not doing very well when it comes to deaths either. There's a reason South Dakota is in this position. Kristi Noem was one of the few governors not to implement stay-at-home guidelines at the beginnings of the pandemic. That soon backfired with the Smithfield Pork Processing Plant becoming one of the largest coronavirus clusters in the entire country. When Trump decided to start holding rallies again, she was right there with him at Mount Rushmore. And then there was the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally which hundreds of thousands of people from all over the country traveled to and which became one of the biggest super spreader events in the entire country. Here's Noam directly encouraging people to come on out to the state. We know we can have these events, give people information, let them protect their health, but still enjoy their way of life and enjoy events like the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. We hope people come. Our economy benefits when people come and visit us. And by November, the Dakotas were leading the world in COVID deaths. And not only did Nome continue her hands-off approach, she actually made it harder for indigenous communities in her state to enact checkpoints to stop the spread of the virus where they live. It's a microcosm of what's happened throughout this entire pandemic. And after the break, I'll be joined by the president's senior advisor for COVID response. And part of that response must contend with the fact that the virus is disproportionately hitting communities of color. And with variants spreading, the disparities could get even worse. A 35-year-old black man in Alabama, Alfonsia A.J. Jackson Jr., one of the first diagnosed cases of the U.K. variant, passed away yesterday. In a Facebook post, his wife Ashley wrote that, quote, I wouldn't wish this on anyone. You are now our guardian angel, and you are at peace. As new COVID-19 variants enter the country, we are in a race against time to get people vaccinated as quickly as possible. But vaccines are not getting to every community equally. The CDC only has demographic data available for just over half of U.S. vaccinations. But they report that in the first month of vaccinations, white women over age 50 got a majority of the shots. White Americans in general have thus far received up to 60 percent of all vaccines given out. While black folks, who comprise nearly 13 percent of the population, have made up just 5 percent of those who've been vaccinated thus far in the U.S. And joining me now is Andy Slavitt, White House senior advisor for covid response and one of my favorite follows on Twitter. I'm so excited to have you on, Andy, because I follow you on Twitter. Uh, I'm a big fan of you. Um, so let's get right to it. The disparity between 
African-Americans and other people of color getting the vaccines and white Americans. Chris Hayes had this great analogy last night where it's a three-part system. It's supply, having enough vaccine. It's distribution, being able to get it out. And it's demand. Which of those three pieces is the problem here? Is that there's just not enough to go around? Is there resistance among African-Americans that's the issue? Or is it something else? Well, uh, Joy, this is the exact right thing for us to be talking about. You people want to know what structural racism means. This is what structural racism means. It means that if you, the, our attended systems just naturally bias in favor, those with more access means an advantage. You, so I think, I think things are going on at, at all levels, probably, um, and it's hard to parse it out entirely. But, but we have things going on now, which I think I might refer to as vaccine gentrification. Um, so the, the vaccines that we put into low-income communities into uh, communities with large portions of racial and ethnic minorities. People are coming from the suburbs who probably never visited those communities or haven't in a long time and getting in line because they know that that's where we're putting a lot of these vaccines. We see people who have kids who get on their iPhones and iPads for them uh, because they've got lots of technology and they, they get the first appointments. These are just things that happen uh, are happening um, all over the place. So unless an extended effort is made, and there are some extraordinary things we're doing and are going to do, um, this will get worse and worse, and we cannot let that happen. And, how, and so tell us what some of those extraordinary things will be. I mean, we've had even Dolly Parton, who I love, by the way, and please come on the show, Dolly Parton. Uh, but she said, look, I'm not going to get it. She put a million dollars into the Moderna vaccine. She's still not going to get it because she's like, until everybody can get a shot, I'm not going to get a shot. But not everybody is her. As you've described, people are going to try to get it because they have access to technology, et cetera, and money. How do we change this? Yes. So, I, you know, I was talking to a couple of different states where they were opening up big um, stadiums to do uh, mass vaccinations. And one of them uh, just did it the old normal way. They put it out in some stadium and they had naturally what you expect to happen happen. The other one arranged with local churches to, to bring to provide buses so that the first people out there uh, were people from racial ethnic minorities. And what they told me, at least self-reported, is that they had triple the level of access that they had 30 percent of the vaccine went to went to racial ethnic minorities and the state was averaging less than that. So it's a good thing, and we, but we've got to do that in everything we do. We're going to be uh, shortly announcing that we're going to be moving vaccines into federally qualified health centers. Remember also that a lot of people in black and brown communities don't have a regular doctor. They have to use the emergency room. This is a function of our health care system not providing health care equally. This is not just a function of COVID-19. And so you like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. For those folks, we need to make vaccines available in kind of non-traditional places. I had a call today with church leaders. Um, there, there are people in states that are setting up tents or in churches when people go on Sunday, because that's where we know people do go. So I do, I do think there's probably also a, um, a hesitancy set of concerns in, the, in these communities as well, not to take anything from, from those issues. 
But we've got to do a better job of making sure the supply gets to the people who need it. Yeah, and please don't do what the Florida governor did, which is rely on Publix, which is both a politically problematic entity um, based on the money that it's given to like the one six uh, rallies, but also isn't located in communities of color. That is one issue that, you know, these supermarkets don't locate in communities of color. So if that's the basis of distribution, no one's ever going to get it. I know that you guys have opened a federal uh, mass covid vaccination site. You've done that now in California. Is that going to be sort of the model state to do it or when, I mean, because I think the question for everyone is when can anyone who wants it who can get can get right. access to the vaccine when do you think that that's going to be well first thanks for referring to that announcement so in east los angeles a heavily hispanic community and in the east bay of san francisco uh i should say uh, oakland area um those are two of the first mass vaccination centers we're opening we're obviously being very sensitive to the fact that there are people that have the means to, to get anywhere they need to get to get vaccines. And so we're needing to locate them uh, where where these communities are, where it's easier for them. So that's important. Look, we you know, and I think the message to the public is I'd love to I'd love to tell the public overall to your question that we came in here and there was a big stockpile of vaccines, as I think at one point we'd led to believe that there were we've been led to believe that there would be you know 100 million vaccinations by now, that there was all kinds of parallel production of vaccines over the course of the last year. That's not what we found. We found um, that there was no stockpile of vaccines. So we are doing is we're getting vaccines out the door as fast as possible. We're only keeping about two to three days of inventory in case there's production issues. And we've over the since January 20th, we've increased our allotment of vaccines out uh, by about a third. So we are steadily gaining on it uh, week by week. Uh, there's no silver bullets. This is not the administration that's going to promise the silver bullets, but it is hard work. It's a, it's working aggressively and it's finding every opportunity. And we will continue to grow those vaccines over the next few months. Uh, I, I really thank you for being here. Just to remind everyone, 26 million cases, 451,000 deaths. I sort of choke on having to even give those numbers uh, every night. It's terrifying. So we are rooting for you. Andy Slavitt, you're great. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you, you being here this evening. We definitely are rooting for you. Okay, well, finally, as we continue to celebrate Black History Month, the next time you're at a red light, remember the name Garrett Morgan. Back in 1923, Morgan invented the mechanical three-position traffic signal, which greatly reduced traffic deaths. And this was not his first life-saving innovation. In 1914, he invented an early version of the gas mask, which was used by U.S. forces in World War I. So thank you, Garrett Morgan. We appreciate you because you've made it so that we don't have car wrecks. And that's tonight's readout. Thank you all for being here. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.